0: Give him praise in this house tonight. Hallelujah, Jesus. Oh, oh, oh. Woo, if he's been good to you, clap your hands one more time in the presence of the Lord. Amen. You can be seated for a few moments tonight if you can. Hallelujah. Tell somebody on the way to your seat, the presence of the Lord is in this place. Amen. How many of you have been living in victory the past couple of days? Anybody been singing the unsung song the past couple of days? Hallelujah. Amen. We have been enjoying such a powerful presence of the Lord. How many of you were here on Sunday and were blessed by what the Lord did in this sanctuary on Sunday morning? I'm telling you, this place was packed wall to wall. And uh, Pastor Stephen Collins preached the paint off the walls on Sunday morning. When he finished preaching and the Lord finished moving, Yamalet was baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the Holy Ghost. Come on, somebody help me rejoice tonight. And then Bethsaida was baptized in Jesus' name, filled with the Holy Ghost hallelujah and then Sabrina was baptized in Jesus name filled with the Holy Ghost and just before service started tonight brother Kevin Cronin was baptized in Jesus name and came out of the water speaking in other tongues as the Holy Ghost gave the utterance come on somebody help me put your hands together and give God praise tonight Jesus. Woo. There is no telling what could happen in this house before we leave tonight. Amen. Did you come expecting something great from God tonight? Hallelujah. I want to again say what a privilege and an honor it is tonight to have all of our guests in the house of the Lord. Would you help me one more time? Put your hands together and welcome them. We are so honored to have you in the house of the Lord with us tonight. It is so good to have brother and sister Selby back with us uh, this evening all the way from Indiana. And uh, they're here, I think, on a little vacation. And, man, they're doing what great apostolics do, and that's go to church during vacation time. And I don't take a vacation from the Holy Ghost or the presence of God or the preaching of the Word. We're, we're so delighted to have them in the house of the Lord with us uh, tonight. And then so wonderful to have First Lady Sonny Jones with us this evening, all the way from Jacksonville, Texas. Her and her husband, uh, Brother Micah, Pastor Micah Jones, uh, pastor in, in Texas. This is Sister Mandy Jones, sister-in-love. <laughs> And we've got two of her nieces with us tonight. So wonderful to have them in the house of the Lord, and uh, what a privilege it is to feel the presence of God in this place, the way that we do tonight. Amen. Want to remind you one more time? I know they announced it tonight, but next Friday. Tell your neighbor next Friday. Next Friday, right here. Is it at seven o'clock? At seven o'clock, six o'clock. What time? Seven o'clock. Right here, we are going to be celebrating the incredible accomplishments of all of our RCA students, including those that are graduating this year. How many of you will lift your hand and just commit to be here on Friday next week to help us celebrate? And uh, it's going to be an amazing time. Not only are we going to be celebrating the accomplishments of our RCA students But we also want to celebrate and recognize all of the graduates represented in the entire house. So we've got other graduates that are going to be joining us in the ceremony. And if you know of a graduate this year in this church, um, and, and you're not sure if they're plugged into what we're doing next Friday, please see Sister Sloss tonight so that we can get them plugged into what we're doing. We want to give them... Uh, Great honor for their accomplishments and all of their hard work. Amen. Amen. It is a privilege tonight to have both Pastor and First Lady Collins and their beautiful family with us. All the way from Birmingham, Alabama. Oh, yeah. And uh, I love and appreciate this family. And over the past few years have had the privilege of getting to know them a little bit better and uh, I, I love, love, love this man and his incredible family and what God is doing with them and through them in Birmingham, Alabama, and I believe that he is a voice that is going to be impacting our globe and is already making inroads, and God is using him in such a powerful way. He blessed us here on Sunday with the word from the Lord, and then he was a part of a Uh, a meeting that we had on Monday yesterday and uh, spoke to us and imparted some incredible things from God. And he is here on Tuesday night at the Rock Church as a vessel of the Lord. How many of you came anticipating God to do great things? Would you stand to your feet all over the house one more time tonight as we prepare our hearts for the entrance of the word of the Lord? Brother Collins, we want you to come and obey the Holy Ghost. Whatever God has for us, we're ready to do it. Amen. Put your hands together one more time and give God a great praise. Come on, give God a great praise as he comes to deliver the word of the Lord to us tonight.
1: Praise God. What an incredible victorious atmosphere is in the house of God. How many of you feel victory? Praise God <laughs> Praise God Well it is so good to be in the house of God one more time It's an honor to be in His presence tonight To be able to come boldly before the throne of grace one more time And I don't, I don't take it for granted that, that I am able to come into the presence of God And feel um, the mercy and the truth and the grace of God I'd, I'll just tell you, I'm not supposed to be here I'm supposed to be sitting on a bar stool somewhere, but God's grace and mercy found me. Praise God. He found me. And it's a privilege to be in his presence. And uh, I consider it an honor to be here with you, worshiping with you. I consider it an honor to be here with your your pastor and his family. And um, I've really had a, a wonderful time uh, being with them, I appreciate Brother Sloss and the time that we spent to, together today, and uh, appreciate everything that uh, this church has done for us while we're here. Appreciate the basket, all the goodies they took. They took time to figure out what my kids like, and that bag of Reese's is almost gone. <laughs> Praise God, and I just love this this church and this family. We're going to be uh, reading tonight in the book of Job, chapter 1, and I do feel like I have a word from God for this church tonight, Um, and uh, we're going to get into it, and we'll just, we'll, we'll get to the place in this where the Holy Ghost moves, and then we'll just take our hands off the wheel and allow God to do a work. How many of you want God to do a work here tonight? Praise God. Praise God. Job chapter 1 and verse 6, now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came also among them. And the Lord said unto Satan, Whence comest thou? Then Satan answered the Lord and said, From going to and fro in the earth, and from walking up and down in it. And the Lord said unto Satan, Hast thou considered my servant Job? That there is none like him in the earth, a perfect and an upright man, one that fears God and escheweth evil. And Satan answered the Lord and said, Doth Job fear God for naught? Have, Have you not made a hedge about him and about his house and about all that he has on every side? Thou hast blessed the work of his hands, and his substance is increased in the land, but If you will put forth your hand now and touch all that he has, he will curse thee to thy face. And the Lord said unto Satan, Behold, all that he hath is in thy power. Only upon himself put not forth thine hand. So Satan went forth from the presence of the Lord. I want to preach But just a few moments in this house tonight, a divine wager. A divine wager. Can I I give you a subtitle? This is my subtitle. God is betting on you. Why don't you put your hands together? Magnify God for his word that's forever settled in the heavens. God, we love you. We praise you. Come on, somebody lift up a high praise in this place. We exalt your name, God. We magnify you, Jesus. Anoint every home and family and life tonight, God. Do a great work in this place. Everybody say in Jesus' name. Shake hands with somebody before you're seated and tell them God's going to do a work in this place tonight. Praise God. I know there are some people here who would take exception with the idea that God would make a wager. There are some people here tonight who would say, I'm not sure if God is a betting man. But let me just tell you what the word wager means. It means to take a risk, to put a sum of money or something valuable on the table against an adversary or an opponent and the, and there be a an unpredictable outcome that there might be a variable at at play or uh, at stake and and so if somebody's going to put a wager on something they're going to put something up they're going to put something valuable on the table and uh Once God implemented human will into the divine equation, there was a variable. There was something that uh, could affect the outcome. We we know in, in theological terms that foreknowledge is not predestination. That there are some things that God foreknew. But just because God knew how I would choose does not... Uh, mean that he predestined that particular outcome. Once God put human will into the equation, it began to move the pieces on the board around, and and there are all these variables now at play. And so, but I want to say something at the outset of this discussion tonight. I want to I want to propose to you that there is a macro plan of God. There is a big picture plan of God. That is predestined. There is a universal design and plan that God has implemented into the human narrative that is predestined to unfold exactly the way that God has designed it for uh, to unfold, and and that that outcome. Tonight is not open to debate, it's not open to discussion, it's not open for conjecture. We're not here tonight to to determine the macro plan of God. This is one of the foundational ideas in Scripture. God never changes. Psalms chapter 90 and 2, before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hast formed the earth and the world... Even from everlasting to everlasting, thou art God. Malachi 3 and 6, for I am the Lord, I change not. Therefore, ye sons of Jacob are not consumed. Isaiah 40, And 28, hast thou not known, hast thou not heard that the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, he doesn't faint, he is not weary, there is no searching, there is no exhausting of his understanding, Psalms 33 and 11, the counsel of the Lord standeth forever, the thoughts of his heart to all generations, Hebrews 13 and 8, Jesus Christ, the same, yet. Yesterday, today, and forever. Numbers 23 and 19. God is not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. Hath he said, and shall he not do it? Or hath he spoken, and shall he not make it good? James chapter 1 and verse 17. Every good and perfect gift is from above and cometh from the Father of lights in whom there is is no variableness, neither shadow of turning. God is the same. His word is the same. It's fixed. It is infinite. It is it is preordained. It is pre If you build your life on the word of God, your life is built on a foundation that is like a rock, no matter how the wind blows. It's not going to change. No matter how bad the storm gets. It's not going to change. God is good and God is righteous and God is true and he's never going to be any different. And if you didn't have a reason to praise him before you came tonight, that's a good reason to take about 30 seconds and get up on your feet and give God some praise. Praise Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. And as an extension of God's identity, the Word of God meets the same criteria. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. John 1, if you abide in Him, you are bound up in God's eternality. You become connected to that eternal component of God. Isaiah 40 and 8, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the Word of God is going to stand forever. Psalms 119 and 89, forever O Lord, Thy Word is settled in heavens. Luke 21 and 33, heaven and earth are going to pass away, but my word shall not pass away. 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 25, but the word of the Lord endures forever, and this is the word by which the gospel is preached unto you. God is never going to change. And his church is predestined for success. And his word is never going to change. Come on, aren't you glad tonight to be a part of a kingdom that is an everlasting kingdom? Aren't you glad to serve a God who is an everlasting God? Praise God. Satan did not initiate the conflict in Job's life. But God did. Job is doing well right where he is. He isn't bothering anybody. He's obeying God. He is instructing his kids. He is living righteously. Job chapter 1, there was a man who lived in us. He was a perfect Man, He was a just man, and he was upright, and he feared God, and he eschewed evil. He walked circumspectly around it, and there were born seven sons unto him, and three daughters, and his substance was great, and his house was great, and his children were great. He had all these possessions, and his sons went and feasted in their houses, and everyone on his day and sent and called for their three sisters to eat and drink with them. They were partying. They were having a good time. They were celebrating and it was so when the days of their feasting were going about that Job sent and he sanctified them and he rose up early in the morning and offered burnt offerings according to the number of them all for Job said it may be that my sons have sinned and cursed God in their hearts and so this Job did continually and, and God knows some things about Job that nobody else does. God knows some things about Job that Job doesn't know and God knows some things about Job that his enemy doesn't know and God knows some things about Job that his kids and his wife don't know. They're not privy to this information because God is omniscient. God isn't just concerned about what Job is in the story. God is not just concerned about what Job's doing with his life and doing with his hand but God is also knowledgeable about and he is fixated on what Job. Job can be because God sees the end from the beginning. God can see the beginning of your life. God can see how it started. God can see the, the, the experiences in your life and the negative things. and But God can also see the end. And because he's omniscient, he is aware of what Job can be. And so he's standing in Job's beginning and in his ending at the same time. And he's not just concerned about where you are at any given moment. He's not just concerned about the victories that you've had up to this point. He's not just concerned by the wonderful experiences that we've had in the past or the present circumstance of this church. But God understands what you can be. God understands what I can be. God understands what this church can be. And God is not afraid to allow circumstances to begin to unfold in your life that are designed to be the wind and the wave that take you into a future that's much further than the future that you've experienced at this point. God knows some things about Job. God knows his capacity for stretching. God knows his potential, and God is willing to allow some moments of negative experience to happen in Job's life that are going to produce the things that God has designed for him. Jesus said it like this in John chapter 15 and 2, "Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. That means he cuts the branch off, that isn't producing, and every branch, branch that bears fruit, he purges it, that it may bring forth more fruit. So either way tonight, you're going to get cut." Look at your neighbor and tell him, "Either way, you're going to get cut. This is God's system. But finite life has a leveling effect. It has a gravitational pull. It has a way of it just the nature of the day that you're living in. The job that you're working. The finite world around you. What you hear on the news. It has a way of pulling you down. It has a way of leveling your life. It has a way. It's amazing that kids dream great dreams when they're young. They have an ideal uh, idealistic perspective about the world and they The world through its potentiality and maybe through a little bit of naivete, but life has a way of pulling them down to a place where they do just what is necessary every day to get by. I think I'm preaching to some people tonight that you've done some, you've lived in seasons of your life where you've just gotten up and you see the stack of bills and you hear the negative report from the doctor. Life has a way of pulling you down and saying, You know what, I'm just gonna do what it takes to get by. I, I might miss church tonight or I might I might get distracted by this circumstance because life will, will pull you down. But I just, I've come to remind somebody here tonight that God has a design for your life that is bigger than the circumstance that you're going through right now. God has a design for your life that's bigger than the sickness you're feeling in your body right now. God has a design for your life that's bigger than the neighborhood that you come out of. God's got a design for your life that that's bigger than the last name that hangs about you like a ball and chain. God has sent me here to preach to somebody to tell you that he sees possibilities in your life that you can't even comprehend. That God wants you to look up above your circumstance, above the trauma in your life, and see a potentiality that is far beyond your imagination. He's a God that can do exceedingly abundantly above all that you can ask or think and it's according to the power that's already working on the inside of you by the Holy Ghost praise God but we can become satisfied to drive a dirty car and live in a dirty house yeah, because that's what life does that's what circumstance does doing just what is necessary each and every day to get by, but this is juxtaposed by getting up in the morning and brushing your teeth, combing your hair and taking a shower, and finding your best outfit, and putting on your best garment, because there's something about that, thinking about not just... Not just about fitting in with my culture and the environment that I came out of. But there's something about getting up in the morning and saying, you know what, I don't know how much time I have to get things done. But this is the day that the Lord has made, and I'm going to rejoice, and I'm going to be glad in it today. I'm going to joy in the God of my salvation. I know everybody around me may not be living up to this standard, but I've made up my mind. I'm not getting sucked down into the world that I'm living in, but I'm going to put on my best outfit, and I'm going to fix my hair and brush my teeth, and I'm going to... Oh, yeah, the day's not happening to me today, but I'm going to happen to the day. The day is not going to determine who I am, but I'm going to determine what the day is going to be because I serve a God who owns the cattle on a thousand hills. I serve a God who has all power in heaven and in earth, and he told me that you're going to receive power after that the Holy Ghost has come upon you. Some people, the devil doesn't even have to get involved, bills getting paid late, neglecting basic repairs on the car, on the finances, neglecting Bible study and personal health and family time. The devil doesn't even have to get involved because my negligence is creating the chaos all around me. But let me tell you something tonight. If you're living the minimal spiritual experience, the devil is not afraid of you. If you're allowing the day to come to you and happen to you, the devil is not intimidated by you. Herod didn't fear the child laying in the manger. That's not what he feared. He heard the prophecy. He heard the wise men telling him what visitation had happened to them. The prophecy was, yes, a virgin's going to conceive. We talked about this Sunday. She's going to be with child. She's going to produce a son. The government, Isaiah 9 and 6, the government's going to be upon his shoulders. But the child in the manger is not what made Herod Bow up against the plan of God. The enemy doesn't fear the child. He doesn't fear the impotent thing. He doesn't fear the thing in its amorphous or undeveloped state. He fears what the child can be. And so he comes to the place of infancy and he tries to kill the baby. It's not because the baby makes him afraid. But it's because the spirit knows what will happen if you grow up. The Spirit knows what will happen if you get your life together. The the Spirit knows what will happen in your community if you get full of the Holy Ghost. The the Spirit knows what will happen in your family if you don't allow the family pressure to dictate who and what you are. Pharaoh didn't kill all the children, two and younger, because he was afraid of what they were. He was afraid of what they could be. He didn't fear what they were in their immature state, in their undeveloped state there is a seed in them that can produce something dynamic but that seed down on the inside has to grow it has to germinate it has to be watered, it has to be tended and in order to cause what is in seed form on the inside of you to grow up to the place where hell fears who you are, you have to do the heavy lifting you have to do the hard work and sometimes it takes a long time to have victory In a family. Mama, sometimes it takes a lot of prayer before you begin to produce. Sometimes you pray day in and day out and it doesn't happen and it looks like it's getting worse and worse. But remember, Mama, God is not a man that he should lie if you raise up a child in the way that he should go. When he is old, he won't depart from it. The Word of God is going to do Exactly what the word said it'll do if you will do what you are supposed to do, and God and you can meet together in an anointed life, there is no telling what you can do. Paul said it like this the heir, as long as he is a child. This is the rightful son. This is the heir. This is the one who has all of the potential and the promise. He has the correct last name. He has the birthright. But he said the heir, as long as he is a child, he differs nothing than the servant, though he be Lord of all He's Lord of all in potential. He's Lord of all by birth. But there is a process that brings what is in his infancy into its place of completion. And he said as long as you stay a child, as long as you stay in that first year of development, you might have the birthright and you might have the promise. But you're going to be just like a servant in the house of God. What does that mean? I'm not diminishing servanthood in the house of God but I mean to tell you that if you don't buy into what God is saying about your life through your own investment then you're going to stay in your spiritual infancy and you can stay in that state 5, 15, 20 30 years but you can also come into the house of God and say everything this man preaches I'm buying into it everything that God says I can be I'm going to appropriate it to myself everything that God has prophesied can be. I'm going to live like it was already happening until my spiritual life grows up and I'm not a child anymore. But now I am a son with all of the power and authority and anointing that comes with sonship. Praise God. You see in finite life time is our adversary. Time is our enemy. When we are not Filled with the infinite. Filled with the universal and the transcendent. Time is our adversary. Time is working against you. That's why your skin sags. That's why your eyes droop. That's why your vision diminishes. Because time is not your friend. Time is working against you. you are, when you're living for a temporal reward, when you're living a carnal existence... Time makes everything entropy, and everything break down, and marriages fall apart in time. Families fall apart in time. The, the average life of a marriage lasts like three to five years, because and in the world, your best year is your first year. They call it the honeymoon. And after the honeymoon, you're not living in the honeymoon any longer. Ha) huh. <laughs> No honey, just the moon. (laughs) Praise God. But that's in the world's economy. That's the way that the world sees it. In the kingdom of God, when your marriage is full of the spirit of God, the first year is not the best year. The first year is the worst year. Why? Because a marriage has to mature. Because a marriage has to grow. Because my marriage is the seed of possibility for what the kingdom of God can do when a woman and a man come together in holy matrimony before God, who say in sickness and in health, for richer and for poor. You think that season of poverty was your enemy? No, it was your friend because that little 800 square foot condo we lived in melded us together and it brought us together and we learned to lie and cry together and we learn to pray together and God was preparing us to enlarge our territory but the world looks at it in reverse because the world is looking at it through a carnal lens and so the first year for them is the best year. But for the apostolic, the first year is the worst year because my, I'm watering my marriage and I'm, I'm, I'm watering it with prayer and I'm scattering seed on it with reading new material and studying the word of God and bringing my wife and me to church and bringing my kids to church and, and we become like olive trees in the house of God that are as the spirit of God moves and as the man of God preaches, we begin to grow up into a mature plant and in the process of time the father comes by the tree and he sees buds beginning to flourish I'm telling somebody don't give up on your family while it's still in its infancy don't give up on your marriage while it's still a baby don't, don't give up on a ministry while it's amorphous and unformed ah, praise God Less than eight years is the average marriage, and this is what the world does. The world builds structures that are finite and that break down in entropy. This is what's happening in the world around us, in families, in culture, in civilization. As the Word of God, as much as this was a Judeo-Christian culture and society, the foundation for the culture and the society was the Word of God. But at every juncture that the Word of God is removed, it loses the pristine, it loses the beauty, it loses the infinite. And what happens is in the absence of the Word of God and the Spirit of God, things begin to break down. Our differences, when the Spirit of God is present and the Word of God is present... We begin to reconcile them and we begin to come together. But the vow is gone in the absence of the word of God because what's the point in staying together? And what's the point in thinking forever when God's presence is not there and when there's no longer an infinite God in the equation? In Scripture, Christ is the ideal man. Isaiah 7 and 14, Isaiah 9 and 6, he's a child, he's a son, and he has to grow up. Isaiah 9 and 6 and 7 and 14 represent the potential or the possibility for what he could be. The prophecy idealized what would be accomplished, but time and season would bring it to fulfillment in Luke chapter 2 we read about Jesus and if you look at Isaiah 9 and 6 7 and 14 and Luke chapter 2 together or in harmony or in unison you see what happens to the man, the physical man that is the embodiment of the spirit of God. Multiple times in Luke 2 and 42 and in Luke 2 and 51 it tells us that he grew in wisdom and in stature in favor with God and with man. That he increased body, soul and spirit. That he sh- he. he, sh- he sh- stretched his intellect and he, he spent time in prayer. And as a man, as a physical man, he expanded, he grew physically, he grew emotionally, he grew spiritually. He There were seasons of his life where he had to be about his father's business, but there were also seasons of his life where he became sub- subjected to his natural mother and father. He submitted himself to the process of development and he grew and he increased and, and he became a son and the son grew in body and, and, and as this started to happen, you see, Herod was trying to kill the baby just like Pharaoh was trying to kill the baby. But as the baby escaped through the power and the presence of God, the angel comes and tells Mary and Joseph, take him into a place to protect him, to keep him safe from this this demonic influence, from this pagan king. He he begins to grow and he begins to pray. And I I can envision in hell Satan uh, watching this happen. I can imagine he's done everything that he can to stop the plan of God. He's, he's saying uh, uh, guys guys he's uh, he's praying uh, guys he's he's fasting uh, uh, guys I, I need you to do something about this the the baby the child is growing he's he's becoming oh man when he was in the temple debating with the Pharisees and the doctors of the law and they they marveled they were puzzled what 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 means this? What is this? What is, who is this child with this wisdom? He was not yet. He was not yet the completed form of what he would become. He was still being developed, and the people wondered at it, and they marveled at his doctrine. And I could imagine in the spirit world there was a shaking going on. as The the Bible said, if the princes of this world had known that they had crucified the Lord of glory, they would have never crucified him. But I could imagine as as the baby in his undeveloped state, began to grow all of a sudden hell started to pay attention as he developed a prayer life and as he developed a word life and then and then he begins to perform his ministry he begins to heal the sick and he starts to raise the dead and he begins to fulfill prophecy as this as this in this visible man is channeling the invisible god as this finite man is channeling the infinite of god hell was taking notice the kingdom of darkness was paying attention as this individual life uh, uh, of incredible force and power started to radiate this energy i want to tell you tonight that your adversary is completely reprobate he believes that he He can erect a kingdom that can oppose and can conquer the kingdom of God. And the Bible tells us that hell hath enlarged herself. Hell has taken fathers and convinced them that there's no point. Hell has taken mothers and convinced them that you might as well throw in the towel. Hell has taken sisters and brothers. Hell has taken civilizations and cultures. Hell has taken Great men and women of God hell has taken apostolic preachers and Sunday school teachers and anointed kings hell's not worried about what you are now hell worries about what is happening as time passes as you look in the mirror and you feel that time is your adversary hell understands that a praying mama time is on her side hell understands that a praying church time is on your side because hell understands the parable of the unjust judge with the widow woman who keeps coming back to the house of God and saying God I know I'm a nobody God I know that I don't have a pedigree but I'm coming back to the house of God one more time and I'm gonna knock on the door God Jesus said here the parable of the unjust judge though he fear not God. And though he not regard not man, yet he's going to answer her for his importunity's sake. God's looking at somebody here tonight and he's saying, keep on knocking because God's better than an unjust judge. Time is your friend. Keep coming back to the house of God. Keep praying those great prayers. Come on, weeping's going to endure for a night. But I'm telling you, joy is coming in the morning if you don't faint, if you don't give up, if you keep prophesying. Praise God. Praise God. He's afraid of you reconciling your present reality with your future, your future promise, even in failure, even in you falling short, even in your own disappointment when your heart condemns you and when you fail yourself. And even when you make mistakes, and even when you break promises, and even when in your humanity you show your finitude, hell is still afraid of an apostolic who doesn't get so condemned and who doesn't get so dismayed by their failure that they give up and they walk away from God? Hell is afraid of people that he gave him their best, he gave them their best shot. That hell came against you, and hell, hell took your feet out from under you. But you stand back on your feet and you wipe the blood off of your nose and you say, Rejoice not against me, oh my adversary, for when I fall, I shall arise because of his disobedience and his failure Moses didn't go into promise God said no you're not going he failed he messed up he failed to continue to esteem the plan and the purpose of God the pattern in scripture he strikes the rock, and he didn't know that the rock was Christ. And the Word of God tells us that Christ would not be smitten twice. He broke a pattern. and Satan thinks it's over as death comes to lay claim to him. But on the Mount of Transfiguration, Jesus, who is the rock, the one who was smitten by God, Through the mouth of the prophet and then in literal fulfillment is standing with Moses, the prophet of God, who missed the mark. And at ground zero of the plan of God, he's doing eternal business. He's standing in the land that he saw, but he could not inhabit. See, your adversary knows that. Your adversary knows that if you can continue to get the victory, even in the face of failure and disappointment, God's going to plug you back into the plan. And he's going to plug you back into the promise. And he's going to, I'm telling you, there's not a person under the sound of my voice that God doesn't want to use in a dynamic way to fulfill his plan. The process of time, Satan comes to Job, He comes to God. He says, Yeah, God, I see what's happening. He hadn't cursed you. He hadn't walked away. But skin for skin, a man will do anything. His wife told him, Curse God and die. But Job said, Oh, no. That is a horizontal perspective. That's looking at life through finitude. I'm going to live forever. That's a God perspective. I'm in it for the long haul. I'm in it for eternity because I have eternity living on the inside of me. I'm running this race to the finish. I'm going to get a crown. I don't care what happens in this physical life. I'm going to see him. If the skin worms eat my flesh, I'm going to see him with these eyes and not another. There are all kinds of things competing for what God wants to produce in my life. Entertainment, movies, a prayerless existence, not paying tithes. The devil wants to convince you to live a life of banality and carnality and to neglect your walk with God, to exchange long-term gains, things that God wants to do in your life in due season. For short term entertainment and pleasure, a long term loss for a short term gain. But I'm gonna finish this race. I'm in this for the long haul. I am in this to see what God is going to do in the life to come as well as in this life. Musicians come. Some might take tonight to God being a gambling man. If you don't believe God is a gambling man, what about the man Judas? What about Judas? Did God have a plan for Judas? Did God call Judas to failure? What about the blood that he shed? What about the blood? What did God put on the table? One drop of blood. Sinless, spotless lamb. He put it on the table. The deal is on. The lamb slain from the foundation of the world. You think God doesn't wager? Which person under the sound of my voice did he predestine to hell? Which person in human history? Hitler, Stalin, Mao? Which tyrannical leader? Which KKK member? Which betrayer? Cain, Korah? Which man or woman? Jezebel? Which one did he predestine to failure? He shed his blood in the plan, in the mind of God from the foundation of the world. And he put it on the table. He called Judas. He called Peter. He he ordained them to success in the kingdom of God. God had plans for Judas, just like he had plans for all of his disciples. God had an end for Judas. John 6, Jesus answered them, have I not chosen you twelve, and one of you is the devil? The question that I have, though, is who's the devil? One is the devil, but which one? Which one's the devil? Which one of his disciples was the one that would embody Satan? Now, don't be too quick tonight to answer Judas because I heard Jesus talking about it one time. Is it Judas or is it Peter? In John 6, Jesus' public ministry has reached a crescendo with thousands of people flocking to him as he performed miracle after miracle, raising the dead and feeding the multitudes. They were having rock in church, and finally Jesus was on the map. And he looks at the multitudes and says, you have to eat my flesh and drink my blood. And the Bible says that many left off following him. And he looked at his disciples and he said, will you two leave? I'm not sure what you believe, but Peter is the only one he ever called a devil to his face. Peter had great revelation. Peter had great understanding, but there were times in Peter's life where he was less than what he could be, but John tells us after the story unfolds, he spake of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. For he it was that should betray him, being one of the twelve. Only looking back with reflection after the story was over and the dust had settled, would we ever really know who the devil was? Maybe, maybe that's because each of us has a deceiver on the inside. Maybe Peter and Judas are like Esau and Jacob, representative people who reflect back to us what we truly are in negative and positive potentiality. Jesus had plans for the 12. And Peter was called Satan, but Judas became possessed of a devil. Peter didn't get so dismayed when Jesus called him Satan that he walked out of the church. But Peter repented, and Peter found a place to weep before God. And Peter didn't allow a moment of failure to get him off track. But Jesus was compassionate and gentle and easy with Judas. And Judas walked away. And Brother Williams, sometimes when we're dealing with people, we try all the strategies. Paul said, I became all things to all men, that I might win some. Yeah. And some, some we save with fear. Some we challenge and some... We rebuke and some we exhort and some we negotiate with like God who said, come, come let us reason together. Come on. Let's talk about this, Judas. It doesn't have to end this way, Judas. This doesn't have to be the end of the story for you, Judas. I've got plans for you, Judas. But while he's washing the feet of his disciples, he gets that towel that bucket of water, and he puts it in front of all of them, betrayer and everybody else alike. and he washes their feet because he still believes in them. He still has skin in the game. He's still invested. God is still betting on Judas. I still believe in you, buddy. And Peter, look, Judas is sitting there. He's dipping the bread. This is my body. It's broken for you. And Judas is taking the bread with, with unclean hands. And he's dipping it in the sop. And he's eating in an unceremonial way because he's impure in his heart. And he bears the bag. But Jesus is still giving him a portion of the bread. And he's still serving him. And he's still dipping in the same cup with him. In the same sop. Peter, Peter's still being Peter. He's saying, no, you're not doing that. You're not, you're not washing my feet. And Jesus says, Peter, if I don't wash your feet, buddy, you don't have any part with me. And Peter says, that was a rebuke. That was a challenge. You're making me look bad in front of my friends. But you know what, Jesus. If that's what it takes to have a relationship with you, then wash my feet and wash my hands and wash my head. Wash me, Jesus. Wash my whole person because I'm in this for the long haul. Jesus says, no, Peter. If I wash you, you're clean. But there's some here that have Have been washed. But they are not clean. What does that mean? What is the phrase washed. But not clean. You mean I can be baptized in Jesus name. Washed. Symbolically washed. And not be clean. Yeah. Because the washing. Continues. After. We go down in the water in Jesus' name because the apostle tells us that the word continues to wash us. It washes out the inner man. It washes out my imagination that is profane. And it washes out my thinking that is dirty and compromised. And every time I sit in the house of God, the word keeps on washing me because God's got a big picture plan for me. And it doesn't stop. With my entrance into the kingdom of God, that baby, that child, that seed has to grow up and become mature and perfect so that I am entire wanting nothing. I don't care where you are tonight. I don't care where you are in the process. God sent me here to tell you that he's betting on you. God is invested In you God sees all your mistakes he sees all your failures he sees your insecurities he sees your fears he sees the culture that you came out of and he is calling you tonight why don't you stand why don't you stand he's calling you tonight come on the church is predestined the kingdom is predestined. The word is predestined. The majesty and the glory and the splendor of God's kingdom is predestined. But I've got to predestine myself. I have to connect myself to the predestination of the kingdom of God. Come on, why don't you cry out to him tonight? Why don't you cry out to him tonight? Come on, those that he foreknew, he also did predestinate to be conformed into the image of his Son. Day by day, week by week, month by month. God, form me. Shape me, God. Me over in your image oh God I don't care what it takes oh God I'll put my pride on the altar God come on why don't you come up and pray for just a few moments tonight
0: Let the word of God work
1: on the inside of your heart.